Welcome to the Home Lab Show, episode 73. How you doing, Jay? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. The uh, thing we're going to be talking about today is automation. And this is going to be led a lot more by Jay. I'm a observer here. Uh, we're going to be learning a lot more. I, I'm familiar with the words. I've not done as much deploying with any of these. But the automation strategies are really important because when you build something out, especially if it's complicated. Now, it's fun to tinker with things in the lab, but for a business, you want to have like a wind up and wind down process and replacement process to build in an automated way or build a dev environment in a scalable way and a very repeatable way. That's where the automation comes yep. in. Uh, because, you know, if you're used to working in a Windows world, people are like, oh, you just keep cloning Windows and do some of that. But in the Linux world, there's orchestration tools we're going to be talking about to make your life easier when rebuilding all of your VMs or your applications and everything. So that's what our topic is for today. The first place we want to uh, talk about though is Linode and they have all kinds of automation tools. We're actually going to be talking about a few of them that you can absolutely use in Linode. And I think Jay's going to have some expanded topics later on that. But of course, mm -hmm. this is all standards, open things we're talking about an open source. And Linode is a great place and a great sponsor of the show who run all of your open source ideas and project when you want them public facing. And I said first sponsor, cause I'll thank Linode for this, but uh, we want to give Jay a shout out because there's something Jay wants to talk about. Yeah, um, I, I want to basically plug my new book, Mastering Ubuntu Server, 4th edition. It's uh, been out for just under a week now, and it's doing really well. So I just wanted to thank everybody that has checked it out. It's uh, currently the number two book when it comes to Linux servers. It was, and it also held the number one and number three spots, both when it comes to uh, new releases and servers and like several other categories. So I'm like really blown away right now um, at the response. It's just been so great. So if you haven't checked it out yet, you could go to ubuntuserverbook.com. That's a special little microsite I've created that just links to the places where you can get the book from. So yep. definitely check it out. If you haven't already, I am like super excited for this one because I don't have any numbers, but it really does seem like it's doing even better than the last one, which is uh, definitely a great feeling. So yeah. Really super make, happy about that. And I'll say, make sure you leave a review and uh, let people know what you thought of the book. Um, not just on like here, but like you, the places where you get the book. <laughs> it's where you can right. do that. Um, is it available on Amazon as well, Jay? It is. Kindle, okay. Amazon, the publisher has um, their website for it. And then I also did a Google search and I it looks like other other publishers' websites are, are also stocking it. So I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. Um, yeah. More exposure. So, um, so yeah. Very cool. So there, there's our announcements, and now we can dive into automation. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's cool that Jay's uh, got the book. I you know, I know Jay well enough. I got an autographed copy of the first one. So, <laughs> yay! I don't even remember autographing that one. That's cool. Yeah, I think you um, did. I think you wrote. Your, I had your name in it. I think last time I got that one. Um, and then I do have. I already got a copy of this. One. I've not read it yet, so uh, it is on my to do list to sit down. And it's perfect because it's winter, so I can sit down and read some books. That's. I'm not a big summer book reader, but I'll I'll read a few books in the um, once it gets colder out because I don't want to be outside anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same here, actually. And get my Linux knowledge on. I want to be as smart as Jay on Linux. He's uh. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Now let's just dive into the topic here. And what's the first tool we're going to be talking about? You got a list so, of here. Um, yeah. So I have a little list that I've put together that I'm going to be following along with. And some of these things, I want to be clear. We have talked about some of these things, but um, some of the things that I'm going to going to be talking about are brand new. I've never mentioned before. Some of them I did, and then it's more along the lines of how you orchestrate everything from beginning to end, and how these tools fit together because. We've gone over like 
you know, singular tools, but this is more like how they fit together. And uh, in the case of Fabric, I don't think I've ever mentioned that. At least I don't remember mentioning that. So we're going to talk about that as well. So the ultimate goal is to automate every step of the process of building servers and tearing down servers. If you can't achieve that, then that's great because then if you know something happens and you need to rebuild, it's I mean you, you you've been training for this, right? You have all the tools and the scripts and the, and everything in line, and you could just go through and, and do what you have to do. So um, that's the ultimate goal, but it takes a long time to get there. If now a bonus goal is if you could get you could get to a point where you can like let's just say delete a virtual machine, just delete it, just just randomly delete it, and then you know it just comes back a new one just automatically spins up your data is untouched everything is there that's a bonus goal if you can get to that then you're pretty much at the level that enterprises should be you know you might think they're all you know at that level but most often not. no no <laughs> we'll just throw it out um, there. <laughs> but if you could get to that point then it, it kind of helps you you know with your job if you're tasked with uh, implementing some of these things so the first Thing I'm going to talk about is a concept more than it's a tool. And there's probably different words you could use for this. I'll, I'll just call them stateless servers. The idea being that you could have a virtual machine or a container. It really doesn't matter. It could be a container or virtual machine. So you could just insert container anytime I say virtual machine. And it has no data inside. And that's pretty much the case when it comes to Docker anyway. But it has no data, no database, nothing. It's just the VM or the container just attaches to maybe an NFS share, a remote database server, so that you can delete or, you know, delete the VM, or if it goes down, you can recreate it. And that's how you get to a point where there's um, no data loss, because there's no data to lose on that instance, because you don't put anything important on that instance. So one, one working example of this for me is Plex. I, and I've talked about this before, but if you haven't heard me talk about it, the basic gist is that Plex, if you didn't already know, is a uh, server for multimedia, especially movies, but they also support music to uh, allow you an easy way to consume your movie collection. Now, obviously, movies are a, a big pain point when it comes to storage. Now, my VM is 16 gigabytes, gigabytes, not terabytes, gigabytes, and it's completely stateless. What happens is that everything is mounted via NFS. So, and this has happened, if something happens to that VM, I just you know, restore a backup or whatever, and it comes back and whatever. Um, I don't miss any movies. It, I still have my progress and everything is great. So if you can get to that point, that's awesome. But at the very least, we want to be to a point where you can just automate the building and destruction of your servers. You should be able to spin up and uh, tear down things whenever you feel that's necessary. So that's going to be the overall... Um, you know, storyline, I guess we're following here in the uh, saga of uh, automation and home lab. So that's where we start to get into some of the tools. Now, again, some of these I've mentioned before, but I'm going to throw a bit of a curveball and I'm going to mention one right now that I've never mentioned before, and that's Fabric. Fabric is a Python library that you can download and you will need to know some Python. You don't have to know a lot. In fact, if you want to learn Python, um, as long as you're willing to, you know, struggle a little bit at first by just learning the basics of it, um, it really is a great way to learn Python because with Fabric, what it does is it essentially is basically like Ansible, but not as powerful. So it's 
really a good way for bootstrap scripts. For example, if you want to um, do an initial settings or config run on a VM for the very first time, you could just use Fabric for that. And you can point it to the server over SSH, just like Ansible. It doesn't have as many features as Ansible. Um, so if you were to use this as your only automation solution, you can do that. But at some point, you will outgrow it because it's not. It's, it's just going to hit a ceiling. And then at that point, it's Ansible. So you may as well just use this for bootstrap scripts. So it lets you do common things like copy a file to a server, run a command on the server, and things like that. And admittedly, it's been probably five years since I've used it. I had to actually just Google it before the show and make sure it still existed. It didn't get deprecated or something. <laughs> it, it does. I was using it back with Python 2 point something. I don't remember which version. So obviously the syntax with Python 3 is gonna be a little bit different, but if you're looking for a project to learn Python, that's going to give you like an uh, applicable systems related thing, because let's face it, you buy a Python book, what's gonna happen? It could be a good one, or you could read this book and it's like, here's how you create a mortgage calculator with Python. And then you're thinking, gee, how exciting is that? Um, and that's I why- <laughs> yeah, projects that get you to yeah. a goal that work, especially in your home lab to help solve a problem, help you dive into them more. Um, I, I, that's right. one of those things when people ask where to get started, find a product, find a project like that, that's going to like, hey, I want to get my Plex server automated. Cool. You have a goal because not everyone. Wants, maybe you work in the finance industry and you want to build a mortgage calculator, but I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to build one. <laughs> right. So and, and the interesting thing is that uh, Fabric is actually how I learned Python because with my ADD, I'm trying to read these Python books and they're putting me to sleep. No offense to the author. I'm sure the problem's mine. But at the end of the day, um, this is why when I write, I try to make it more like, um, you know, related to the actual field. So it's more exciting rather than, um, you know, you read a programming book. It's like objects are like dog or are like dogs. You have type dog, but then you have subtypes like poodle. It's like, that's great. But how do I use that in the real world? And Fabric is absolutely that because what it does is it it shows you how you could use Python to actually interact with you know with systems and connect to systems and you know, deploy something to them, which is really great. So um, one use case for Fabric that would be a good one is installing Ansible on a target server, right? Because we're going to talk about Ansible a bit. So you want to use Ansible, but it's a chicken and egg problem. You could build Ansible into the image that you deploy. That's fine. Or you could just have a bootstrap script that does the initial connection, installs Ansible, you know, things like that. That's fair. And then while you do this, you'll learn Python if you didn't already know Python. So it's kind of like a two for one, which is why I wanted to mention that first. Um, you know, I have a question, though, mm -hmm. and I've wondered about this. <laughs> Are there any of these that do it in reverse, so to speak. Like, hey, I have this existing server, let's say my Greylog server, and it, can it reverse out how I built it at all? Like grab that configuration or bring it back to that state uh, where it pulls like the change configuration files. I guess I'd have to point it at it at that point, but there I don't is. know if there's any. Um, yeah, there is. It, it kind of depends on the tool though. Now with Terraform, we'll talk about that. It okay. does allow you to do that. However, with Terraform, it's actually going to tear everything down. So if you wanted to do like a one-off, you know, remove a part of it or go, you know, move one config file back, but not the whole system. I would say Ansible is a great way to do that. If you have it under Git, for example, version control, then you could just revert 
the uh, git commit back to a previous one and then you know it'll run. So that's probably the best way to do it. But if you wanted to tear it down, uh, Terraform can absolutely do that. Yeah, because my thought is like there's a lot of packages and extras. Like I, you install the base OS, then I had to throw some packages. I mean, the easy way to do it I've done is just, you know, look at all the, as uh, I'm usually using a Debian based or Ubuntu based system. I can just dump a list of the packages and make sure I reinstall those. I know how to do that. That's been yep. my kind of easy go-to way to get it done. <laughs> when I need to say, I just want to build a server just like this one. Here's everything that was installed on it. I'll just run this again to install. But I didn't know if there was an Ansible builder that did that for you or some other related well, tool. Well, we'll talk about some tools and then um i think that'll probably better frame your question because if your question okay. isn't answered by the end then i think um it'd be great to talk about that Perfect. because then we can and, and anything else related to what about this what about that i love those questions because that's how we learn right so we, we learn those edge cases and things and, and, and not just audience this is how tom learns too so <laughs> yeah and sometimes i'm learning from you like like mm -hmm. there's another topic we're thinking about uh covering we mentioned yesterday i'm not going to mention it i don't know if the episode's going to happen but i don't know anything about it really so i would probably be looking yeah. at you for that so um the next tool that i'm going to talk about is vagrant but I also want to mention Packer as well. I'll talk about both in more detail, but there might be some confusion about Vagrant versus Packer, when you would use one versus the other. So when I mention what they do, you might think that they do the same thing until I get into more detail. So Vagrant allows you to spin up reference virtual machines, and then Packer allows you to also spin up virtual machines, but it focuses more on images. Now. Let's talk about the life cycle. So Vagrant is something that you would use before Packer. What Vagrant allows you to do is it can hook into a virtualization solution, which could even be just VirtualBox on your local computer. It doesn't have to be a server. So for example, let's just say you heard about a new feature in Ubuntu or Debian or whatever, or a new package or something, and you really want, really want to try this out. Now, what this can allow you to do is you can use Vagrant to spin up a Debian VM. You could point it to VirtualBox. You could point it to other sources as well. Um, in my notes, I have VirtualBox, VMware, and AWS. There's also third-party plugins to add support for other things. But Vagrant is more for test environments. It's not for like, and this is the main difference between it and Packer. So Packer is something you would use to create something that you plan on keeping around that's going to be possibly production. Vagrant is more like, I want a reference VM to test something. So I want to see what this app behaves like on Debian versus Ubuntu. Or I want to run my Ansible scripts, and uh, I want to change my Ansible scripts, but I don't want to run them against a production server. I'd rather test them out on a test server before I point them to production. There's even, as I was Googling around, a way to use Vagrant to spin up a Proxmox host. So if you wanted a reference Proxmox host, you could absolutely do that. So I think the most common use case for Vagrant is to point it to VirtualBox. That's what I've seen the most. So you have a you know developer or a DevOps person. They might have VirtualBox on their system. They use Vagrant to spin up VMs as they're testing. Maybe their company's app, they want to test on different VMs. So they want a pristine um, virtual machine. They can create it with Vagrant run their tests, and then use Vagrant to bring it right back down. So Vagrant can delete the VM when you're done with it. So that could be a good way to automate something. Now, Packer, and, and a lot of these tools are made by HashiCorp, actually. I just kind of now realized that because Vagrant, Packer, yeah. and Terraform, um, you know, are all, all HashiCorp. HashiCorp. 
HashiCorp makes a lot of DevOps tools. So um, I don't think it's possible to even study DevOps for longer than a week and not at least hear about HashiCorp at least they, one time. Yeah, there's a market leader yeah. in that, I would say. They so. really are. And it's open source, by the way. So even though it is a business behind there, um, these are open source tools you have access to that we're talking about. Yep. So let's look at the next stage. So you want to build a virtual machine. Maybe you want, or even a physical server, doesn't really matter, but you just want to build a VM, you're ready to build it, so you can get an ISO image, you can install a Linux distro, or you could even create a template, that's fine, and a lot of people do that in your virtualization solution, just create a template, use that template to you know, create other virtual machines, you could build in things to the template if you'd like, but what I like about Packer is that it allows you to automate the building of the image or the template layer, so you think about um, your virtual machine solution and the work you go through when it comes to building an Ubuntu template, for example, you could uh, obviously just download Ubuntu server, install it on a VM and then make it a template. Or you could create the config within Packer, point it towards you know, Proxmox, for example. I wanna build a, a Proxmox image or an AWS image or whatever it is. And it'll absolutely build that image for you. So you could say, I want Ubuntu 2204, and, and then it just does the thing and you, you have the thing. So Packer automates the image layer of this. So that's why you know I'm going kind of in order here. So Vagrant to test things, then Packer to actually deploy an image. Although Vagrant is something you'd probably use at every step because you're probably always going to want um, a test subject every now and then to test something. But um, the actual first stage of a production deploy is probably going to be Packer because that creates the image, but it doesn't actually deploy the image, you know, for you, your virtualization solution, you could deploy the image or template, or you can move on to the next step, which is Terraform. And Terraform can take that image that you created with Packer or even a template if you didn't use Packer, but Terraform can create the environment. It can spin up the virtual machines using whatever image you want it to use. Um, you know, and when it comes to cloud providers, it can uh, set up your networking subnets, uh, security groups. I mean, whatever features your um, provider has. And HashiCorp uses the word provider for what you're building something inside of. So if you are building it in AWS or Proxmox, and Proxmox is the provider in that case. AWS, you know, AWS is the provider, and there's provider plugins for these tools that you download. Same with Packer and um, obviously Terraform. So with Terraform, that creates the things that you would would then be maintaining or uh, keeping going. Um, and then Terraform allows you to also destroy if you want. So if you have ten virtual machines in your config, uh, you know, with Terraform and you spin up those 10 virtual machines, it'll let you do that. But if you do Terraform Destroy, it'll destroy all 10 of those VMs. So you better be careful with Terraform Destroy. Um, another thing Terraform allows you to do is update existing things that you've rolled out. I don't use it for that. Um, as I talked about in another episode, it's like Ansible is probably a better fit. Um, so what I like to do is Packer creates the image, Terraform takes the image and creates a VM with it, Ansible takes the VM that you've created with Terraform and then makes it to the spec that you want it to be. So if it's going to be a web server, then Ansible will, you know, you could have a role web server. It'll make the server into a web server or whatever you have defined. And then if you make changes to your Ansible config, then those changes will be rolled out to all the machines. So if you want to do a, I don't know, a security update, there's a vulnerability that's out right now. So you could just 
put it in Ansible once and Ansible goes out and just hits all the machines and makes sure that they have that security update rather than signing into each one, one by one and doing it manually, which, you know, ain't nobody got time for that, which is probably, it should be the slogan for um, configuration management in general, I think. <laughs> so, um, so those are some of the tools and there, there's other ones that I want to mention as well. But um, now when it comes to Ansible, I have a short URL for that, uh, for my Ansible series. If you haven't learned it yet, it's uh, linux.video slash Ansible one. I'll take you to the first episode in that series if you want to go right to that. Um, we'll have all the links in the in the show notes. Um, but so, so far, um, my question to you, Tom, is if anything I've gone over at so far answers the question that you had. Yes, a lot better. And one of the things I'll mention too, if you look up some of the Terraform providers, as they call them, you're going to find everything from AWS, Azure, Google Cloud, um, Oracle Cloud. There's a, all your major big cloud companies in there, but there's also Proxmox. Then there's also attachment for Zen Orchestra. So uh, all the different platforms that we've talked about here on the channel, especially Zen and Proxmox are uh, supported as well. Um, and they even have some Windows integrations, which I didn't realize. I've never used them yeah. for that. Um, but yeah, pretty cool that you can do Terraform with uh, some Windows automation as well. So that's that part standard, not just Azure, but like it has some Active Directory options. Um, I said outside of the scope of this particular video, but yeah, there's Terraform is pretty cool to, to get yep. things built up. <laughs> yep. So other concepts that I want to cover, because those are the some of the tools there. I mentioned Fabric for creating the bootstrap script. So um, Fabric, you could then have it uh, do the first Ansible provision, for example. It can install Ansible and then you know run the first provision. That's a valid use case for it. And then I mentioned the uh, purposes for the tools from HashiCorp. Um, those are all great things to learn, highly recommended. Now, another concept that I think is important here is um, continuous integration, continuous development, or is it continuous deployment? I can never remember that, CICD. And immediately, a lot of people think about things like Jenkins, which is like a really, really popular CI CD solution. So the idea is if you use Git, which you should use Git for everything, like your, you know, all the configs and everything you do. But even better is if you have a system where when you make a change to those configs and you push those changes, then you have something like a CI CD solution that notices that you made a commit to the repository and then runs it on an agent or whatever it is that you have it do to prove that it actually works. And if you have an error, it'll let you know. But I don't want to make this episode overly complicated. Uh, Jenkins is a whole other thing. But what I've done is I've created what I call a poor man CI CD solution, which um, I feel like it, it, it fits the absolute definition of CI CD, but it doesn't require Jenkins or anything special. So for me, when I use Ansible, I have two repositories. I have the main repository, which is what everything gets. That's production. And I also have staging as well. Staging is where I put all changes, basically. And anything I put into staging gets run on reference VMs. And then I'll get a message back that, you know, the deploy finished or it didn't. Then I'll fix whatever I have to fix. So I commit everything to staging. And then if um, I commit something to staging, and then it works, I don't get any errors, and I just merge it into main, and then all of my machines um, get that change. But how did I set that up? So what I've done is I've had I have a reference virtual machine for each. In my case, my use case is going to be a lot different because I'm a you know I do a YouTube thing, so I, I need like reference Debian, reference Ubuntu, and all these different distributions. So for each of the distributions that I support via Ansible, I have a reference VM for it that is looking and the VM itself via cron is looking for a commit to staging 
So I don't have Jenkins or anything like that. I just have actual Linux servers that are looking for changes. And then if they see that there's been a commit made to the staging repository, they'll pull them down, run them, send me a, an alert, let me know if it worked or if it didn't. And if it passed on each of those VMs, meaning it works on all the distros, then I merge it into main and it goes to the rest. So that's one way, uh, it's kind of manual, but it is a way of having a CID, CI CD solution without also having to deploy Jenkins. But I, I'm not telling you guys to avoid Jenkins. If you are really serious about CI CD and this interests you, then that's absolutely the direction I would recommend going. But if you just want something um, in place quickly just to test your code or whatnot, it's probably easier just to do it the way I've done it. But also keep in mind that doesn't scale well. So if you then want to test this and then you want to test that, you have things outside of Ansible, at that point, it probably be, it is better to use Jenkins because that's what it's built for. And if you manually build everything, um, that it gets to a point where that's just too much technical debt. Um, but CI/CD is great because, again, you could just push your change to a special repository that production servers don't have access to. It'll run against uh, reference agents or VMs, let you know the status. If you like what happened out of your config, then you could push it to the others. And I think that's a really important thing to do. Um, if, if not for home lab, it's especially important when it comes to enterprise. And if you work in IT, then it, it's probably just a good idea to get some practice with this if you don't already have practice with this. And one of the things you touched on that I want to repeat for the crowd here, technical debt. It, the technical debt starts the moment you start the project. Mm -hmm. You have to, from the time it's on the drawing board, look at the scalability of it, and you'll save yourself so much time a year, two years from now. So if you're just someone who's building a home lab, awesome. The technical debt is part of the learning process and things like that. But if you're an IT person in charge and responsible for your internal IT or external because you're an external administrator, really think about the scalability, where that project's going to go. Uh, because man, there's so many times uh, people contact us and it, they're full of technical regret, uh, technical regret. It's just, that's probably where we would put it. No, actually, I kind of like that. Can we just use that? Can we just use that. It's not technical debt, it's technical regret. If I only would have known not to try to do it, and they built something so complicated uh, that it's become unmanageable because the company had 10 employees when they did it. Now the company has a thousand employees. So you always have to be thinking about that. Uh, it's just a, a consideration taken where you're going with it. So, uh, as we said, if you were looking at or go with something like Jenkins, there's a reason that's used. And almost every new young technician thinks they're super innovative. And some are, um, but they just try to go against the grain and write it all by hand and build their firewalls from scratch with uh, rules. And then they realize, wow, I'm the only one that can manage any of this. So always kind of be thinking about that at the very beginning. <laughs> Absolutely. And I want to underscore using Git for everything. I think it's a very important thing to get into the habit of this. So what I'll often do is create a Git folder somewhere on the file system and put the server's configs there. So for example, I might have a private repository and all these are gonna, are gonna be private unless you're sure you have no um, personally identifiable information in the repository, no passwords or anything like that. Um, well, you should never do that actually, regardless of whether it's private or public. But what you could do is have private repositories for everything. And then in the case of a web server, obviously you're gonna have Apache or Nginx config files, for example. And um, if something happens, if you have another person that you work with, I don't know if anyone in our audience 
as a home lab club or something like that. It'd be really cool if you did um, to where, you know, you, you might share some of that. Um, it's probably a, a good idea to have this because if something stops working, you might be like, okay, what, what's changed? If it's under version control, you can just run git status. You can find out right then and there what's changed because you'll know. You could run git diff and, and I have a whole video on, on how to use git if you guys are interested. But um, that allows you to see configuration changes historically over time and roll them back. And a lot of people will think of git, and we have again, we have a whole episode about this actually. A lot of people think of git as something that um, you know software developers use. It's not for me, I'm a Linux admin. That's for the developers. Actually, it's for everybody. Um, I don't even care, um, as I said in a previous episode, if you are writing notes for yourself, it's yeah, put them in git. Why not? Um, it, it we, just lets you practice. We actually comment on our git episode because someone puts their recipes in git. <laughs> oh, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. so that's another example of something you may not think of at the, you know, off the top of your head that it could be used for. But I've had um, servers, for example, and I think this is how you separate the, you know, expert threat actors um, from the beginner or noob threat actors, because I remember one time I had a server and I don't remember how somebody got in, um, you know, they did something. And then I just, since everything's under Git and this is like a WordPress site, actually, I just get <laughs> Git revert. And then everything, the whole state of WordPress just rolled back to before that person even broke into the server. I mean, obviously you can make a case for not, never trusting the server again if someone got into it. But I thought it was kind of funny because I'm, oh, look at that person. They they uh, put a um, base 64 thing in there and just a bunch of gibberish everywhere. Get revert, you know, back to a previous commit. Yeah, that's fine. Um, you know, good luck with that. Obviously, if it was a threat actor that was, um, you know, probably intermediate or advanced, then they probably probably would be looking for a .git directory and getting rid of that first because obviously that's uh, how you revert back. But um, that's just an example of a use case for Git that some people might not think about. Um, that also might have a bit of technical debt with WordPress. That could have been a bad example because WordPress with the plugins updating and this updating and that updating, um, it could be a full-time job watching version control for a WordPress installation of all things. But yeah, um, you could absolutely use Git where you wouldn't even think to. If, if nothing else, if your Apache or Nginx config files are in there, that could be a good use case for it. So you could keep history on that or whatever apps you might be running on your um, system. But another thing that works really well with Git is, let's say you have a template or a script that builds something, um, your server goes down, it breaks or whatever. What you could do is you could just have the server come back and then just do a Git pull of its, you know, all, all of its configs and it's right back to where it was right before it died or had an issue right so at that point it, it's just so easy to get everything back because you have the configs in git you have ansible managing it so even if you restore an image from like four months ago ansible will catch that up and uh, get the packages up to date if you have that set up and then from there you just do a git pull um actually a git clone in this case and then you can have your configs back too. And you could even automate the initial Git clone if you wanted to do that. And I've had uh, servers that absolutely, you know, absolutely do that when they start up. They just do a Git clone of its config files and then Ansible runs. And five minutes later, it's like nothing ever happened, which is just such a great feeling if you can get to this point because it's just so cool. It is. 
And I seen someone comment that they uh, that's where their home lab automation is currently non-existent, but that's where we all started. And you slowly just stack and build on there, all of it. So um, mine is still mediocre existent in my home lab. Uh, my business stuff's way more tight than the home lab stuff I do. And I can't really tell there's like such a split between them sometimes, but definitely um, it, it's not easy. It seems so hard until it isn't is the best way to describe it. It's a lot of things. It's like even the Linux command line is daunting for people until something clicks in your head or even networking and understanding subnetting is really difficult. And then all of a sudden one day it just like you, you kind of wake up in the matrix. Wow. I know networking. <laughs> just like Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's like, you know, it's not even you, it's just, the person teaching you or whatever you're wherever you're getting that the instruction from it might be a great teacher but maybe they're just not your kind of teacher um because everybody has a different kind of uh instructional process that really resonates with them um as for me yeah. I, I like watching videos um it's funny because i can write books but they're not my go-to when it comes to learning something it's watching a video is learning something but when i want to teach it's making videos but also writing books but everybody's different, right? Some people, right. or I've actually met people that can read a book and do only that and they can know and they have good memory and retention. They, I'm like, wow, you actually remembered all that just by reading the book one time? That's like a superpower. I wish I could do that. Um, but but that's just how it goes. Everybody learns differently. And um, I think the most important thing to think about when it comes to automation is, um, yes, I'm telling you to automate everything, but that's just a general term. There's some things you probably don't want to automate. So if you're doing something that you know for a fact, it's unquestionable, you're only going to do it one time. There's no reason to automate that. So <laughs> some people will, right? Because um, and it's good for practice, but if you're automating things that have a very unlikely chance of ever needing to be done again, you could probably make a good argument that it's a waste of time. But if it's something that is going to make things easier for you. Don't go too crazy like me. I'm fascinated with it. You might not be as fascinated with it as I am. Maybe for you, it's just a means to an end. If that's the case, automate what you need. And if something is taking you hours to do and it's just drudgery, then automate it because then it wouldn't take you so long. Um, that's a good reason to automate something. And if nothing else, even if you roll out Ansible to all of your machines and you have all your, all of your machines checking in and whatnot, um, even if you have no config and no automation at all, and it's just a skeleton, that can still help you at one point because if there's a, again, if there's a security vulnerability and something's being exploited, you need to get this patch out there and you have 20 servers, um, when the day comes that you could just put in a play within your Ansible config to push that security update to everything in one shot, you're going to be very happy that you've implemented that at that time, even if that's all you do uh, is, you know, like a skeleton config or something like that that's fine um that everything is fair game here but um for the person that uh mentioned they don't have automation at all well you always don't until you do right um yeah. and if it's not important to you and it's not something that resonates with you maybe just building servers manually is fun and for some of us that is fun and, and for some of us automation might take that fun away because maybe we like the process of installing linux and and we, we don't mind doing that over and over again. Okay, fine. In that case, you know, why automate if it's not going to help you out? But at the end of the day, if you at least automate the things that drive you crazy or just annoy you or just otherwise tedious, I think that alone adds value to automation. Yes. And by the way, uh, this is easy to get wrong at scale. Ask Facebook about their outage because yeah. uh, that was 
really nice automation for servers, but the automation itself was what led to the cascade effect of, hey, build this, rebuild this. Um, and these conditions have been, you know, other times and an example might be, oh, if these servers are down for some reason, you can rebuild them. But what if they're not down for the right reason? And then the automation tool starts trying to build something on top of that. And this is, I've seen people mess up HA systems in a similar way by not having the proper heartbeat to do right. things. And the HA will try to start on more than one, to try to restart your VMs on more than one system. So with any of these automation or redundancies, uh, you have to be very careful and think about any of the race conditions that may exist uh, where there's a collision within here. Because, man, when that goes awry, uh, Facebook managed to, for those of you who don't recall, they locked themselves out of their own building because they their uh, identification management system also relied on their physical building access relied on that. So people in the building could stay in or not get out. And definitely the people on the outside couldn't get in and couldn't get into reset the systems that were down. <laughs> I remember that, you know, it, what's funny and I'm probably not supposed to be saying this, but I'm just going to, um, <laughs> cause I, um, well, the first thing I don't, I don't think anybody cares um, for me to say, but it was actually quite a long time ago. I don't remember exactly when, but at least, you know, five years ago, probably closer to seven or eight or, or something. I actually interviewed at Facebook. Um, mm. It's not something I've mentioned many times. It was it was an over the phone interview that I've done. I figured I wasn't really interested in working there, but I just figured, OK, this might be interesting. And even in my career videos, I tell people if someone wants to interview you. There's no harm in letting them. Because even if you're not looking for a job, you could just be practicing your interviewing skills. And who knows, you might be super surprised and find out you actually love the company. But for me, I was just kind of curious. And um, one of the things that the person said, and disclaimer, the person I talked to was, you know, the initial HR person. It wasn't like someone from their technical team. But she did say that the motto was at Facebook internally. And this is where I might get into trouble. The slogan is break fast, fix faster. Yes. This time they didn't fix fast enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> with it, that one. And it's know. a startup culture problem um, right. with a lot of the companies as well. There's this thought to do it that way. It sounds it sounds good for a slogan, like you're going to work for a real innovative place. Um, but then it, it, it doesn't always lead to the best outcomes. Uh, if you're a unicorn like Facebook, sure, it's going to make a lot of money, but it's not for everyone. Um, and, you know, recent incidents with Uber probably is because they have some of those same policies, which is why someone undoubtedly temporarily put the master pa break glass password into a script that allowed for the elevation of privileges. Now, oh, that is something that happens when someone's like, I don't know, get this done. We're like, well, it's not reading from the external script. I don't got time to solve why. So the short term is stick the variable in there. Um, that's and if no one goes back to fix it, well, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary solution uh, to a problem. So that's where you can be. You got to be careful when you're thinking about that um, and how you place any of the data in there. Because, by the way, as you build your Ansible scripts, you have to think about that. If you're setting passwords, how are you embedding any of the very customized, very sensitive data when you're doing that? That's mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people get in trouble for that. So it's another consideration is the security implementations that can come from doing exactly that problem. So by the way, my scripts uh, don't have them in there because Tom accidentally sent, I have more than one friend with a similar name and I sent my scripts to, they're both technical people, uh, the other friend. And when he replied back, he goes, I don't know why you sent me this, but good job because your script just references where 
uh, where each one of the uh, private credentials are, but doesn't actually have them in your scripts. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, true. This is my mount scripts do not have any. <laughs> they That's need awful. creds, but the creds are located in a very specific place. <laughs> now, um, I want to touch on something you brought up though, because you know you mentioned Facebook, you know, got locked out, right? Yeah. Um, and, and some people might be thinking, well, what does this have to do with Home Lab? I'm not a, like a you know this big company. I don't have like my door access. Well, actually, with Home Lab, you could have your door access in the same system nowadays with IoT, but it's probably unlikely. But you'd be surprised how often a situation like that happens. For example, and this is an example I think that would be likely to happen to a home lab person more than any other. Um, let's just say you do the right thing and you put two-factor on everything. Maybe it's a YubiKey. That's awesome because that's great. Um, that's something you should do. But then you lose the YubiKey. So you lost access to the YubiKey, which is your access to the rest of your system. So that's why there, I don't care if you have to have like a backup code that you put in a safe somewhere, or maybe another YubiKey that you put in a safe somewhere, just in case your primary one goes. I mean, with HomeLab, you run into those things where you can legitimately lock yourself out of your own things. It's happened to me. I think it happens to, I'd be surprised if there's any home labber out there where this didn't happen to them at least once. So if you have been a home lab person, and I'm, I don't mean just one server, I mean, you have more than one server and you've been doing this for at least four years and you have not locked yourself out of something, please email us. We'll probably call you a liar, but um, you know, maybe we'll mention it because I really don't think that it's um, a thing <laughs> that doesn't happen to everybody at some point. Everyone gets locked out. I mean, I've locked myself out of the house and out of the car before, so maybe I'm a bad example. But um, you got to think about having another means of access. Yeah. Don't make it too easy to where it's just SMS to your cell phone, and that's so easy to um, you know for a threat actor to get into. Um, but another YubiKey is a great idea or some other means of getting in. I mean, yeah. that's that's something that's important to have. Maybe maybe that's a whole show topic is talking or, it'll you know, it'll be part of our Rata show. We'll talk about some methods because uh, I have some thoughts on that about password management and where you should hold on to certain pieces of it. Uh, but that'll yeah. send us way off topic. If we start down that road. <laughs> but I think we've covered all the automation or do we have anything else? We got. We um, I think that's the overall gist of it because we can go into more detail and in, into any of these things and some of these we already have like we like episode 10 was our ansible episode if you're interested anyone listening so if you haven't caught that one episode 10 is the one where yep. i go into more detail about ansible then i also have uh the ansible series uh there's some videos about some of HashiCorp's tools on my channel but i really do got to update those um i, I i'm not going to recommend any of them because if i do have any they're probably you know, way too old. Um, maybe I should go around um, and do more videos about that because I think that's something that people would enjoy seeing. Like maybe I can have, um, you know, a Linode instance spun up as well as a Proxmox instance spun up via these tools. Uh, for oh, yeah, that would be fun. fun. And our episode on Git uh, was episode 25. So we've got that. So run through our back catalog of episodes. Uh, there's plenty to listen to. And of course, Jay's got uh, lots of these, as we mentioned in videos. Check out either of our channels for all these different fun things we talk about and more in-depth discussions on them. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, everybody take care. Looking forward to next time. Um, we're still deciding because of some timing of whether or not we'll have a show next week or not. So, uh, we'll leave that up in the air, but if you see, if you see the live stream get posted, um, it's going on. If not, we may have to skip one because of some timing and uh, collisions yep. of things, but we'll get it all sorted out. Thanks yeah, week after next at a minimum. So yeah, we, we, we don't worry. It may have to skip one small, but we're still moving forward. We have more ideas and, uh, 
that one we're talking about. I, I, I think I have some thoughts on that. That I'll share with Jay. So, all right, awesome. thanks. <laughs>